0: Okay, um, do you really, really know what happened? The brother did The brother, that's what I thought too! I mean, that seems like kind of obvious. Hey, do you want talk, talk about it.
1: death? Yeah. I mean, Mystery that's... Murdery,
0: murdery thingy. thingy. Ready? Good. <laughs> Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. I can
1: tell you started because you put on your <laughs> podcasting voice. Right.
0: I slipped it on. It feels good. Like a
1: little, a night, a night, a nightgown. Right. Yeah. I
0: was thinking it's more like a suit. that's like just a little too flashy. Where it doesn't it doesn't look quite good. It's like you're trying to look good, but it doesn't really look good.
1: You show up to the wedding late. Right. You look too flashy. You're
0: wearing like a pale blue like tuxedo and it's like
1: You're wearing those checkered Vans cuz you couldn't find your dress shoes. Right.
0: Exactly. Your hair's all tussled. Anyway. <laughs> oh, you just hit the mic. My bad. <laughs> Sorry, y'all. Oh yeah, I think I noticed that at the beginning of the last episode too. <laughs> well I think it was me though. <laughs> things are
1: things are happening here in the podcasting tent.
0: It's true. Welcome to Mystery Murdery Thingy. <laughs> yes. Welcome
1: to Mystery Murdery Thingy. I'm Mario. I'm Chloe.
0: We're gonna talk about mysteries and
1: murdery and
0: thingies. Ooh. And all sorts of thingies. Um, but I'm doing another assassination, because that's, I'm like, excited. half of the ones that I do. I'm excited. Are you excited?
1: I am in excitement.
0: Good. <laughs> I am a bolt of excitement.
1: All I am I frustration.
0: Um, I don't know what you're doing, but... except from Inside Out or something?
1: No, it's, um... I think it's a vine. I am in oh, I am okay. in confusion.
0: I see. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. <gasps> Isn't that like an old Indian woman? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Nice>.
1: America explain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, should I go first? Sure. Okay. Great, cuz I usually like to go first. Here you can hold it. Okay. Okay, thank you. We're taking turns. It's fun to take turns. Um, okay. Let's
1: get together, yeah, yeah, yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> So I'm doing another assassination Okay, like I'm said. in, I'm
1: excited
0: And uh, so, but, but okay So last week I did, uh, or not last week But two weeks ago I did an assassination In New York City This time I'm doing one on literally The other side of the world Nice. So this is going to be um, the assassination Of Chia Vichia, uh, Who was like a, a workers advocate And uh, like a, a un- union leader In Cambodia
1: Cambodia, okay.
0: yeah, Cambodia. So, um, so I'll kind of kind of start it out by talking about what happened on the morning of January twenty second, two thousand and four. Um, that morning started out, you know, pretty much like like most others for Vichia, except that it was Chinese New Year, so that was kind of special, right? Um, so that morning, he was, according to his widow Chia Kimney, uh, quote, plucking his mustache and studying the Khmer English dictionary. Close quote. Oh, uh, um, is he you? Right. I know. Right. And he spoke pretty good, pretty good English uh, from the documentary I watched. And uh, what Kimney says is that he planned on staying home that day with their young child, uh, their daughter, who was like maybe three or four at the time. And um, he received a mysterious phone call and she doesn't know who he talked to or what they talked about. But right after he received the call, he said, I'm going to head out. And he didn't say where he was going. So he asked if their child wanted to go with him. And she said no. She wanted to stay home with her mom. So he left and went to kind of one of his usual spots, which was a um, newspaper stand, you know, like a little, you know, just on the street newspaper stand where he was reading um, the uh, morning edition of the Cambodia Daily along this kind of narrow sidewalk near a really busy street in the Chamkarmon district of uh, Phnom Penh, the, the capital of Cambodia. And this is how the newspaper stand owner, Varsothi, described what happened next uh, to, to Cambodia Daily. Quote, he sat and read the Cambodia Daily newspaper opposite to me. Chia Vachia usually came to read the newspapers, sometimes in the morning and sometimes in the evening. When I saw the attacker coming in, I did not pay any attention to him. Then he shot via Chia Vachia bam it just happened super quick in public is super public but kind of so so two men on a honda motorcycle right had stopped abruptly right there on the street next to chia or sorry next to vachia um they weren't covering their faces or anything by the way um the one who was on the back of the motorcycle casually just got off of it walked over next to Vichia and shot him three times at point-blank range within arm's length, according to Sothi. He was hit once in the left arm, once in the heart, and once in the head. And then the attackers speeded off. It took, like, two seconds, you know, and they were gone. <clears throat> and Vichia was laying there dying. And, um, you know, it it's it it's obviously extremely tragic right and, and but it's not something that was unexpected at this time oh. in this context in in like cambodia um especially for a man like fachia who was very famous in cambodia as you know a um opponent of the government and um you know of 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 the sort of the bosses and the the, the powerful people in cambodia who were not giving the fair shake, right, in his mind to the workers that he represented and and who he was as well. Uh, He himself was a a garment worker as well. And uh, he had no small number of really powerful enemies. And he knew this. Everyone knew this. And everyone also knew that he was prone to going to this particular newsstand in the mornings mm-hmm. or the evenings. Routine. Yeah. So Vichia, like many other, so many other, you know, fearless advocates that we've we've talked about before, but there's, like, too many to even, like, start naming them. But he's just, like, really one of these people, right, who knew that they were in harm's way, acknowledged this, right, but kept on fighting. Like, literally in those terms. Like, I was telling you, when when I watched the documentary, he was literally like... You know, I know I'm in danger, but I can't stop. You know, if if I stop, who's going to fight for these people? They'll have nobody. So I can't. To, I think he said something like, for me to stop would be like dying. So he knew that he would probably be killed someday, but to him, not fighting for the workers and the people he cared about was literally like dying. It was just as important as physically dying to him. Wow. so it, it's it's interesting he that's kind of i th- i think that's kind of how he put it so it's it's an interesting kind of philosophy i mean it's very extreme right <laughs> but he, he he was very extreme when it came to like his advocacy right yeah. he he was uh um had very few limits in that respect so so just kind of so to lay that groundwork right so anyway um oh he had also um been more cognizant of this danger right of um, that, that he was in, like, to his life more recently before this. And again, this is January 22nd, 2004. And the previous July, there had been um, elections in Cambodia, which were very fraught. And, and, and I don't want to get, like, too much into the history or, like, politics of Cambodia, but... We, We have to talk about it a little bit at some point. Yes, give us. So I guess we we may as well just talk about it now. So yeah, go ahead.
1: Just like what he was fighting for and why and how it all came to be.
0: Definitely okay. So you can't talk about the history of Cambodia without talking about the Khmer Rouge, immediately. Like it's the most important thing that's happened. Um, I mean, one of the most important events in world history in the past fifty years that no one ever talks about. I mean, it's one of the most horrific genocides that's ever been committed in the world on the same level of intensity and horrificness as the Holocaust, as the, the Rwandan genocide that we just had the 25th anniversary of. Um, it, it is truly, uh, I believe, and, and, and I'm sorry if I get this incorrect, but I believe the figure is that 25% of the population of the country was killed. In this 15 year period or whatever it was, so this is where they're coming out of, right? And th- and this was in the 70s to 80s to 90s, I believe, somewhere in that wow. nature. So it was not that long ago. And this when, when my story happened was in the early 2000s. So by this point, a former commander in the Khmer Rouge is the leader of the country, Hun Sen. There's also a king who right. nominally is the leader of the country but has no – like really no true power in my understanding. And and again, I'm not like a Cambodia expert, but this is what I sort of gleaned from my research. The um, other two contenders in the July 2003 elections were the gentleman I can't remember who represented <clears> – <throat> The Royalist Party, and then um, a another party, which uh, was the one that Chiavichia uh, was supporting, um, which was the Sam Rainsy Party, and Sam Rainsy was a, um, a, a an opposition, um, uh, you know, parliamentarian or, or you know, politician who was kind of the the it seems like right in a, in a sort of facile understanding the the true you know uh, voice of the people right in in this context and chiwachu was very much behind him and what sam Ramsey, uh sam Ramsey said in the documentary was interesting he said and i think this is really true sometimes they go after the secondary targets because they know that going after the the head person, right, killing Sam Rainsy of the Sam Rainsy Party would cause too much bullshit for the government, right, for it to even be worth it. But you killed Chia Vachia, it's huge, right? I mean, this was huge world news at the time. You know, he he was an internationally known figure for for being a, a, an opposition figure in in Cambodia, but they could basically get away with it, as we'll as we'll kind of see. So so that's a little bit of the of the background. But li- leading up to this event itself, uh, Vichia had received numerous specific death threats. And one very chilling one was a text message that read quote, a dog I will kill you twenty six oh seven oh three, close quote. And just to so understand, in a lot of the world, they say the, the the day first and then the month and then the year. Yes. So that's what that is, July 26th, 2003. Which, of course, he was not killed on that day. But that may be in part because he was in hiding at that time. Oh. Um, but as was his nature, Vachia was not going to remain in hiding forever. And he was not going to leave the country. What he said was, why should I leave the country? What's the point of that? Then how could I do my advocacy, right? Right,
1: right. He won't be doing his work, and then he will be dead. Exactly, well
0: exactly. And yeah, his work was more important. Um, so he was not phased, really, by these threats. And <clears throat> he came out of hiding. And his brother, Chiamoni, uh, Chiamoni, excuse me, said that, quote, he wouldn't listen to anybody, mm-hmm. close quote. So he was, he was just insistent that this was, like, what he was going to do, uh, one way or the other. So... Um, he led this you know free union right and and there at that time were free unions and government controlled unions it, it, so it's a, it's a it's a complicated political situation in Cambodia the the whole history of workers rights and collective action in Cambodia is very fraught because on the one hand they had by this time by the early 2000s nominally instituted a, a number of reforms Um and nominally, people had the right to free assembly, to uh-huh. the creation of free unions, to protest. But on the ground, things weren't really that way at all for, for anyone, really. And um, the government uh, basically did not hold to their word or to the rule of law in, in any of these instances where they had signed on to treaties or passed laws or even in the Constitution of Cambodia itself.
1: So in the law books we have freedom of this, that, and the other thing, but the government wasn't really...
0: Exactly. It Be- wasn't
1: really like that. Kind of like when after Brown versus Education, it didn't really, mm-hmm. you know, happen.
0: Yeah, because people act with impunity. You know, right. it, it, at some point, if the person on the ground doesn't agree with what the law says, they're just not going to do it, you know? And especially if the leader of the country doesn't agree with it either. You know, at least in the case of Brown versus Board of Education, there was uh, a president who was willing to send the National Guard to enforce the law. You know, if the president hadn't been willing to do that, then the segregationist South never would have done it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we could get into a whole thing about how segregation in America has not ended, nor has it gotten better. But I mean, that's a whole at, different topic. Look at Chicago. <laughs> yeah, literally. Look at, look at maps of... Anyway, well, we don't need to get into that whole other thing. So um, Chia was one of these central people, right, fighting for the authorities to match the promises that they had made on paper in those various you know, laws, treaties, constitution. Um, sadly, though, the government of Hun Sen does not seem to have met those responsibilities in many, many instances. Um, and that very much includes the investigation into Vichia's killing. Mm. So although the police responded... Quite quickly and and with um, overwhelming force, right after the slaying, right when uh, um, uh, what, what was her name? I I forget now. The uh, the shop owner called the the ambulance right away, right, and the police came and but the crime scene was not cordoned off. So many journalists and other members of this huge crowd that was pressing in you know, tainted any evidence that they could have gotten from this, the crime scene.
1: I feel like this is a classic
0: thing. I know, right? It's
1: always the crime scene time. that's never quarantined with assassinations. They do this investigation, and the number one thing that never happens is that they don't secure the crime mm-hmm.
0: scene. And sometimes it's incompetence, and sometimes, as probably more so here, it's intentional incompetence, right? and the police also moved his body after about 5 minutes without um really doing any sort of you know forensic examination at on on site uh in C2 one might say um so oh, oh uh Sophie was the name of the um
1: shopkeeper yeah
0: so um according to her the investigators led by deputy police chief Hengpov produced a fake composite drawing which she says bore no resemblance to the actual shooter, who, of course, she saw. She also says that the investigators told the press that she had given a description of the shooter, which was absolutely not true. Um, and in fact, she called the deputy police chief, Hang Pov to tell him, why did you tell the press that? That's not true. I never told you that. And he had to correct the record later and was like, it don't write about this if you write about the shopkeeper you're going to hurt Chia Vachia's, you know the investigation it, it so he didn't really say it but it, he was he was sort of walking it back you know without having to say it so this kind of, this kind of interesting but she seems she seemed like a really uh strong person mm-hmm. like she was like no like i'm not going to let you just lie about what i said that's that's my it seemed like a matter of pride to her, so I, I got, which I totally agree with. I appreciated that. Um, so anyway, she, um, the the police, uh, there was a lot of pressure on the the police at this point, right, to find the killer. We see this a lot as well, right, all over the world, especially in America, where it's like, okay, when when are you going to find the killer? It's been a day, it's been two days, it's been a week, like. And it's not necessarily the worst thing because obviously, yes, the police should be held to account to run a proper investigation, but it can also create some bad incentives, right?
1: Unnecessary haste.
0: Exactly. And in a system like this, where the rule of law doesn't really apply, it's really, really bad, right? Because the police did find two men to arrest after 48 hours. Um, their names are, uh, Born Somnang and, uh, Sok Somun. And, uh, this is, of course, despite the fact that, um, Born Somnong had an alibi placing him at least 40 miles away from Phnom Penh in the sort of a little more rural town where his girlfriend lives. And he was placed there by, like, between a dozen and 20 witnesses, many of whom were willing to come forward and did so in open court. Um, and while Samnang had these witnesses, you know, willing to come forward to to, to testify and verify to his alibi, Sok Samoon was not so lucky. He had an alibi that he he was at a party in Phnom Penh uh, to ce- celebrate Chinese New Year because okay. again it was Chinese New Year, and um, the witnesses though were unwilling to come forward um, because of the danger. Yeah. You know the the some of the witnesses who came forward on behalf of um, uh, Born Samnang. Uh, had to leave the country because they were arrested. the The police were harassing them. Um, they were in danger just because they were a witness to an alibi. Wow, which is pretty insane. It's pretty fucked up, right? I
1: didn't expect that.
0: Yeah, it, but it's the the system there just seems like so deeply corrupted. You know that it um, it's it's very insecure. You know if you if the police have a reason to make trouble for you then it's it just gets very, very hairy very, very quickly. So there was no real evidence, right, linking them to the crimes. Um, but yet they were convicted. They were convicted and their conviction was upheld on numerous appeals. Any exculpatory witnesses or evidence were discouraged or worse. Um, they were held in pretrial detention for more than a year despite the fact that there's a nominal restriction of 6 months for pre-trial detention in the Cambodian constitution i believe all of this was widely seen both domestically and internationally as a total debacle as a as a complete show trial um wow. and and a real disservice to Chea Vachia and you know any sen- sense of justice that one would have for him
1: show trial meaning like there, we're just going to do this just to please you all. We already know what we want to do, right?
0: And this is a common phenomenon, actually, um, in many contexts. I was just hearing them talk about this sort of um, um, phenomenon in uh, Iran, I believe, um, in the – right, right, in the case of Jason Razayan, the, the Washington Post um, reporter who was brought up on trumped-up charges in Iran and held for over 500 days – um, they said he was like a CIA spy, whereas there was no evidence to that effect. But there was a trial, right? A judge came in. Everybody sat down. It was all orderly. People had papers in front of them. But it was all meaningless. It's a show. It's just a fucking show. But it's so that you can go and say, no, but we had a trial. You know, we, We're not a lawless country like you're saying. We had a trial. They They went through the process. They had an appeal – they were allowed to speak, you know, wow. but it's just not real. So um, the a little bit, just a little bit, uh, bit more of history and context. Um, apparently during the Khmer Rouge genocide that we were talking about earlier, all judges were killed. And there were only reportedly 10 persons left in the country with legal training. Oh, so as a consequence of this, judges that, you know, are there now, presumably, and certainly at this time in the early 2000s, were largely extremely incompetent, and reportedly all of them without exception were beholden to the executive branch um, or other corrupted, you know, intents. Um, But but legally, like formally, they were beholden to the executive branch, uh, just because that's kind of how it's set up in Cambodia, apparently. So unfortunately, Samsung uh or born Samsung nong rather and some uh sang un uh un, sorry had no real chance right for a fair trial um with one exception um and only one exception and this was the first investigating judge uh hang Tarith, from the Phnom Penh municipal court. He ordered, after hearing all the the evidence and everything right, that the case be dismissed due to lack of evidence from the police because they didn't have none, uh, really. And uh, However, this ruling was overturned um, and that judge was reassigned to a very unfavorable assignment um, immediately afterwards.
1: This is all scarily well-organized and efficient and... Mm -hmm. That's freaky.
0: It is, yeah, definitely. It's
1: very, like, it's very hairy. It's very, there's lots of secret, cloudy shit going on.
0: And in the documentary, they show how, like, at during this same exact time, um, you know, they show... Uh, the, what is it the uh the American ambassador or and a diff- uh, the British ambassador or something having like you know f- this fancy dinner with Hun Sen when he finally got the prime ministership after a extended you know battle after the july t- thousand and three elections and it's like you know that the, the u s is like oh you know things are getting better you know that's like it's not not how it used to be. You know, when they were killing millions of people, uh, well, OK, but it's still not good, right? And it's still not worthy of praise when shit like this happens. Uh, you know, it's it's just it's disappointing, you know. And one has to imagine that if it were the Clinton or Obama administrations and not the Bush administration that were, you know, around at that time, maybe it would have been different. But I'm not – I don't know. I don't really – I don't know maybe not i've probably not it probably would have been the fucking same honestly but anyway um they were sentenced uh to 20 years um in jail but continually pleaded their innocence and it's if you watch the documentary about this who killed chia vachia it is that documentary is is uh hard to get through um and especially the parts where they come in you know Where they're allowed to talk to the press or they come into the court and they're just screaming, you know, like, this is injustice. They're torturing me. You know, they made me confess. They're just they're yelling this, you know, just continuously. Like, I didn't do this. I'm being tortured. You know, this it's just crazy. This is like the Khmer Rouge. Like, they say that at one point, like, this is the same thing that's happening right now.
1: Do... We know where they found these guys.
0: Yeah, I can get into that a little bit if you want me to. Yeah, it's essentially well- they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. The um, way that this kind of works and, – and I was going to kind of get into this, this right now actually because it's essentially the suspects in this case, right? It's the police, right? I mean there's not really any other credible suspects other than the, that the police did this. And the the way that this kind of works reportedly in this it, 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 at this time in the Cambodian police was that um, you know there there's like the the guy who runs the police, the four star general of the police, who's like the right hand man to Hun Sen, the the uh, the leader of the country, and um, it kind of goes down from there, right? And at the level of a, an investigation like this or a hit job like this, yeah. Um, a, a, a figure like Hang Pov, who's the the deputy um, uh, police chief in in Phnom Penh at that time, I believe, um, has essentially his you know his uh, uh, overt ranks, right, and then he has his covert ranks, his secret police that work underneath him, what, whom he pays directly, right, from a, a you know probably corruption that he's getting his money from. That's a thing? And it's all off the books. And apparently this, in Cambodia, was very much the thing. All of the, the commanders and, and higher-ranking people had secret police working under them.
1: So do you think we'll ever get any names? Of no. This? I mean,
0: not unless there were maybe... Some big shift in the government and then, you know, they found records and decided to release them. But it's it's I think very, very unlikely. Wow, we'll never know. We'll probably never really know um, so that the shop owner, the sole eyewitness to the crime, of course, says also that um, a plainclothes policeman w- was standing near the scene of the crime as it was happening, although there weren't uh, really any other people around, and was heard to say on a cell phone that, quote, this work is done, close <gasps> quote. So, I mean, it doesn't get quite, you know, it, it doesn't really get more uh, um, <laughs> open and shut than that, you that know. That is some in, shady, a sense, right? shady Allegedly, work. Allegedly, allegedly. Um, so, according to a former UN advisor, there were these kind of secret cells of police, uh, Hitmen, essentially. And one of these cells was led by Pov, mm. And Pov presumably under the direction of Hong Sen, you know, on down, um, was given the order to take Vichy out because he was an undesirable person, because he was making a lot of trouble, right, for the government of Hong Sen, you know, et cetera, and his friends. So um, then he would have farmed that out to the actual killers who then would have taken out you know basically um done the hit and in the documentary there's a um an anonymous uh person who purports to be you know one of these former police members who did this kind of thing and he says you know essentially this is how it would it would work you knew where they were you would go get it done um if you know if if everything went well you just kill the target and you're out if things go ha- go south you just kill everybody what that's what, what he said
1: I this, wasn't is even, that okay, at all. this is even okay this
0: is going to be even more fucked up. He said they usually would then take the bodies and feed them to alligators. What? And when they asked him, so how many runs, you know, to the alligator pit did you make? And he's like many, many. And and the the documentarian, you know, he's like more than 10 and the guy's like <laughs> please. <gasps>
1: oh my god. Oh, I just got chills.
0: I know, it's oh crazy. <sighs> so yeah you know vachia's killing unfortunately um was only one of a number only one of probably you know the most prominent of a number of political assassinations in Cambodia around this time it's, it was just really really bad i really don't i'm not sure how things are there now honestly it just i i don't really know too much about it but yeah not not that great and like you said we'll probably never really know but you know he he left a big hole um, in his society and at the end of the documentary they talked to some different workers and one of the workers said it's like losing a mother mm. and i thought that was maybe the best way of summing it all up um he was like a mother he was like a mother to thousands hundreds of thousands of people you know for whom he stood up for for their rights and his rights and therefore he could not remain i guess in in the eyes of certain powerful people in cambodia it's unfortunate and because of that same system we will never know who really did it probably it remains a mystery
1: wow so that was do... that was
0: wild <laughs> i know right so let me do my sources um van Ruin and kevin doyle at cambodia daily um an article on voice of america andrew nashman not not Chimson, maybe and Yon Siniet at uh, Al Jazeera English, uh, Wikipedia, um, the Who Killed Chia Vachia documentary directed by Bradley Cox, an Amnesty International report titled The Killing of Trade Unionist Chia Vichia. uh James Walsh at Al Jazeera English, and an article on the Cambodian League for the Promotion and Defense of Human Rights page. So that's my thing.
1: Sounds good.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now you get to go.
1: Now I get to go. Okay. <laughs> Okay, it is my turn. Okay. <clears throat> so, um, <laughs> ting-tang, walla-walla-bang-bang. So you uh, said you know a good a bit about this. So, um, a little bit. A little bit. So go ahead and chime in when you would like. Or don't chime in because I might get to it. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to talk about the 1962.
0: Tell me about it. Sorry, go ahead. I, <laughs> I'm
1: going to talk about the 1962 Alcatraz prison escape.
0: Excite. I am excite. <laughs> okay.
1: So this is actually, so I knew this was intricate, but I didn't know how absolutely fucking wild this was. The These people were geniuses, MacGyvers, really, really smart and patient and calculating and Okay, we'll just get into it. So let's talk about Alcatraz itself. So it is a, if you don't know, it is a maximum security prison on Alcatraz Island, also known as The Rock. Um, it is 1.25 miles off the coast of San Francisco. So you can stand on the, um, on the waterfront and look out and see it.
0: So I was just going to say, um, if you've ever seen the movie The Rock, you know what we're talking about.
1: All right, that's where it's set. Um, it opened. Stone Connery. I think. I think it was a fort in the Civil War. I believe so. yeah. And then familiar. it opened as a prison, um, August eleventh, nineteen thirty four. So on Wikipedia, it said the capacity was three hundred. 312, but it actually held around 1500 of the baddest of the bad, all right. These people were trouble makers. The inmates here were repeat offenders and always causing problems at other federal prisons. So if you were too much for like some other place, they were like, "All right, get your ass out of here. You're going to Alcatraz." Um the prison operators and people in general believed that it was escape proof because of its mm-hmm. location, you know, it's on this rocky island. Um and it's on the rough, frigid, mm-hmm. sa- deep San Francisco waters. The Bureau of Prison staff and their families, I actually didn't know this, like live on the island as well. And so this place housed a lot of famous criminals. Al Capone, Chicago gangster um, Killed a lot of people, right. drank a lot of alcohol, did a lot of trafficking, made a lot of money. He's come up in the pot a couple of times. Al Capone, yeah. he's a, he, Well, we did the uh, the Valentine's Day massacre.
0: Exactly. And that was under him. And then when I did one, he was like vaguely connected to it, too.
1: Yo, this guy is everywhere. Yeah. Um, also, George Machine Gun Kelly was at Alcatraz. He is a pro- also a Prohibition-era gangster, uh, but instead of Chicago, he was in Memphis, Tennessee. And he kidnapped oil tycoon Charles Urschel, and he actually collected a $200,000 ransom for it. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So he's over there in Alcatraz. We have Whitey, I think it's... Whitey Bulger. Yes, Bulger. He is the boss, boss, of the Irish-American Winter Hill Gang in the 70s and the 80s. And he uh, was an FBI informant, but he always, always denied it. Um, And he was eventually jailed on... Nineteen counts of murder. So this right. guy was a cold-blooded killer.
0: Yeah, he was in hiding in California for like twenty years or something. Right, yeah. right.
1: Alvin Creepy Carpus. Uh, he's he was the uh, uh, he served the most time out of all the inmates at Alcatraz. Um, twenty six years. He was the leader of the Barker Carpus gang in the nineteen thirties. Um, his partner Arthur R. Doc Barker was also in the gang and also. Spending time at Alcatraz. He was one of the four criminals to be named public enemy number one by the FBI, and he was the only one to be taken alive. All the mm. other ones were killed. So, uh, Robert Franklin Stroud, the bird man of Alcatraz. Oh. This guy's weird. Um, before being in Alcatraz, he was at Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas, where he, like, sold birds, and he became an ornithologist, and he was in, like solitary confinement like connected 300 or um collected like 300 canaries or something like that he like um found the cure to some bird disease dude like yeah yeah he like got shit done because when i read i was like ornithologist what and i was like oh like oh he really was like an ornithologist legit yeah um but he was not a great dude convicted of murder um but he died in prison in 1963 so Alcatraz has a great, great history of attempted escapes. Thirty-six prisoners made fourteen escape attempts during its twenty-nine year history. Um, and overall, Alcatraz wasn't open that long. Eventually, it got really hard to maintain. It was too; ins- it was more expensive than what it was worth. Mm-hmm. So they just took everybody out and put them in different places. I'm going to touch on the Battle of Alcatraz. This was a failed, violent escape attempt. Um, It it lasted for a few days between May 2nd and May 4th in 1946. So it was planned by um, inmate and bank robber Bernard Coy, along with three other inmates. So this... um, actually has a, uh, a Clint Eastwood. No. No, it's not this that has the Clint Eastwood movie. It's the actual escape itself that has the Clint Eastwood movie. My bad. Um, but this was a different prison escape, and they were not successful. So Bernard Coy, Coy, three other inmates, Marvin Hubbard, Joseph Kretzer, and Clarence Carnes. Two other inmates, Sam Shockley and Mirren Thompson, joined the escapees after the attempt had begun. So they just kind of hopped ship. So Koi was a cell house orderly and he's, you know, looking around. He saw flaws in the security. He noticed that the corrections officers in the gun gallery had set routines so inmates could then predict when the main cell block and the gallery would be unobserved. So Koi, he's, he's like, oh, he looks at the, the gun gallery had like um, bars, but no extra nothing else. It was just bars. He was like, yo, I could fit through that. So he starves himself. He loses 20 pounds and he grabs some pliers. So guard Bill Miller opened the gate to conspirator Marvin Hubbard's cell. And then Coy and Hubbard grab the guard, beat him unconscious. Coy takes his keys He sets two more inmates, Joseph Kretzer and Clarence Carnes, free, and then he uses purloined pipes and pliers to spread the cage bars just wide enough for him to push through. They lock this uh, Bill Miller, they lock him in the cell. Bam! Get the fuck in there. He then uh, sneaks up on the next guard, takes his necktie, strangles him into unconsciousness. This is like some real life action movie bullshit. Um, Coy then raids the gun gallery for weapons and ammo. So now him and five other people are armed and free. Their plan is to take the guards hostage. This is so stupid. Their plan is to take the guards hostage and then negotiate um, their way onto a boat to San Francisco. Yeah, One not would think a great. They would want a boat to like
0: Guadalajara or something. Yeah,
1: not a great plan. No, but it doesn't work. So, um, the guard was smart coy tried every key but none of them none of them worked none of them opened the cell block door turns out the guard miller had hidden the crucial key in the toilet of the cell where he was being held so he like Mm. took it at 207 p.m the prison siren sounds which only goes off in like serious emergency apparently it's pretty loud because um the article, the article I was reading talked about how people across the way in San Francisco, like, gathered along the waterfront. They're like, oh, shit, something's going down. So they could, like, watch oh, wow. what was going on. Um, at this point, Coy had opened fire on the guards that had gathered outside the cell block. One of the conspirators, Joseph Kretzer, panics. And he's like, okay, yo, we got to kill the hostages so they can't testify against, against us. <laughs> With his stolen revolver, he, shoot, he shoots into the cell containing the captive guards and he fatally wounds Bill Miller. Police, military, and prison guards at this point, they begin an an assault from the outside, attacking the cell block with rifle-launched grenades. For hours this goes on, night falls, and then on the morning of May 4th, the smoke settles and the guards storm the cell block. Inside, they find three dead conspirators, Kretzer, Coy, and Hubbard, and three survivors who surrendered. In the end, Five people died, three escapees, and two guards. Two of the conspirators who surrendered were sentenced to death, and the other, Clarence Carnes, was actually the youngest prisoner at Alcatraz, so he was given 99 years to life instead of death. So I couldn't leave that out. It was very exciting.
0: Yeah, that's crazy.
1: Now let's talk about the escape itself. The escape was made by inmates Frank Morris, John Anglin, and Clarence Anglin, Um, And if you want to see a a really over-exaggerated, not accurate movie (laughs) about this escape, go check out the Clint Eastwood movie. Um, They also had a fourth accomplice, Alan West, who ended up being left behind, but I'll get into that in a sec. So Frank, let's get talk about the inmates a little bit. Frank Lee Morris grew up in Washington, DC. He spent most of his childhood in and out of foster homes. His parents abandoned him. He was convicted of his first crime at age 13. Spent most of his early teen years in jail, uh, serving lunch to prisoners. He so um actually all of these uh inmates, Frank, John, Clarence, they all escaped from previous uh mm. uh prisons so he escaped from louisiana state penitentiary penitentiary where he was serving 10 years for bank robbery and he wasn't captured until a year later wow um and then he was sent to alcatraz on a number of charges this time armed robbery narcotics breaking entering burglary uh he was actually caught in, in burglary. So that's why he was caught. So he was extremely intelligent, had an IQ of 133 and in the top 2% of intelligence amongst those at Alcatraz. So the brothers, John and Clarence Anglund, um, they were born into a family of 13 children in Donaldsonville, Georgia. Uh, so they were inseparable as kids. They were skilled swimmers, note, and often swam in Lake Michigan during the winter for shits and giggles. Uh, they worked as that sounds terrible. Uh, shut up, just uh, <laughs> worked as farmers and laborers. Clarence was caught breaking into a service station at just fourteen years old. The two started robin Bakes together in the nineteen fifties, and were given fifteen to twenty year sentences that they served at many different pr- prisons, from Florida State Prison, Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, and then Atlanta Penitentiary. Um, they were sent to Alcatraz after numerous failed escape attempts from the Atlanta penitentiary. So these weren't, these weren't amateurs, not amateurs at all. Nobody at Alcatraz was an amateur for, for that matter. The group had actually begun laying plans the previous December. Um, when one of them, you know, he's like, there's some saw blades here. So they started gathering tools. They used spoons Uh, The saw blades and they actually made there's a lot of really clever homemade stuff. They made a homemade drill made from the motor of a of a broken vacuum cleaner to loosen and widen the air vents in each of um, their cells at the the back. So the entire section of the wall could be removed. Mm -hmm. Um, So once they had that done, they hid So, like, when, like, guards would come by, they hid the holes with, you know, with whatever they could. A suitcase, a piece of cardboard, whatever. They covered the noise of their work by Frank Morris's accordion playing. Which I thought was (laughs) clever. That's pretty good. Um... Behind, this, behind the, this wall was a common unguarded utili- u- utility corridor. They made their way down this corridor and climbed to the roof of their cell block inside the building where they set up a secret base, a, like a little workshop. So there they took turns keeping watch for guards in the evening before the last count. And that, so this is like December on um, to June. That's where they started to gather what they needed to escape. Uh, some of the stuff was donated to them. Some of the stuff was stolen, including more than fifty raincoats that they stole or gathered. Those were turned into a in like into all makeshift life preservers, and also a six by fourteen foot rubber raft. The seams were stitched together and vulcanized by the hot steam pipes, um, in in the prison. So, they also built wooden paddles and converted a musical instrument into a tool to inflate the raft. So, this is some um, wow. real life shit. Um,
0: if like you're saying MacGyver type shit. Yeah,
1: yeah. At the same time, they were looking for a way out of the building. So, the ceiling was a good 30 feet high, but they. You, they like used everything they had to their advantage. They used a network of pipes and they climbed up those, eventually pried open the ventilator at the top of the shaft and they kept that in place temporarily by fashioning like a fake bolt out of soap. Um, so on the night of June 11th, 1962, they crawled through their vents and into the corridor. They gathered their gear. They climbed up and out through the ventilation shaft and got to the roof. Alan West, however, he had used cement to, like, shore up the the crumbling concrete around his vent opening. And it had hardened, so um, it, like, narrowed the hole um, and fixed, like... The, the the grill in place so by the time he was able to remove it and then rewiden the hole the others had left oh, no. yeah so he like climbed back down and went to sleep <laughs> for real yeah. um so the three they are hauling their gear with them they descended 50 feet to the ground by sliding down a, another pipe a kitchen vent pipe then they climbed two 12 foot barbed wire perimeter fences there was actually a blind spot at the northeast shoreline where the guards and the, the like watchtowers couldn't see. It was near the power plant. So that's where they inflated their rafts. At some time after 10 p.m., this is what the investigators estimate, they boarded the raft, they launched it, and departed toward their objective, Angel Island, two miles to the north. On the morning of June 12th, the inmates were found missing after an early morning bed check. So they're long gone. In their beds were cleverly built dummy heads made from a mixture of soap, toothpaste, concrete dust, and toilet paper. And they topped it with real human hair that they got from the prison barber shop, and they used flesh colored paint from the like the mechanic shop. Uh so it was these dummy heads that and clothes and towels like stuffed under the blankets made it look like that they were sleeping, and those actually fooled the night guards so there's there's like multiple checks throughout the whole you know a whole 24 hours and those are the ones that fooled the night guards so that's why they weren't caught to the morning so they sounded the alarm and a manhunt began immediately so within two days a a packet of letters sealed in rubber and related to the men was recovered later some paddle like pieces of wood and bits of rubber in tube were also found in the water A homemade life vest was also discovered washed up on uh, the beach, but you know, they had all these extensive searches and they didn't find any other items An extensive air, sea and land search involving multiple military and law enforcement agencies. Um, they did that over the next 10 days. Investigators were, you know, they were, they were pretty sure that the men had drowned, but they never found any bodies. Uh, The FBI did, however, say that it was theoretically possible that they could have made it to Angel Island, but the frigid waters and the choppy waves made it almost impossible. The FBI closed the case in 1979, and none of the inmates were ever heard from again.
0: Pretty crazy.
1: Or were they?
0: Or were they?
1: In 2013... A handwritten letter was sent to the San Francisco Police Department's R- Richmond Station. The letter claimed to be from escapee John Anglin. "My name is John Anglin. I escaped from Alcatraz in June 1962. Yes, we we all made it that night, but barely." The letter went on to explain that Frank Morris had lived into the 2005, and that Clarence Anglin had died of natural causes in 2008. Um, there was a reason that. So, supposed allegedly this guy was writing the letter said that he was 83 years old in bad shape and he wanted to cut a deal with the police quote i have cancer if you announce on tv that i will be promised to first go to jail for no more than a year and get medical attention i will write back to you to let you know exactly where i am this is no joke after an investigation they actually had like an they kept it for about five years and they didn't really release it to the public until January of 2018. So they sent it to the lab, examined it for fingerprints, DNA, analyzed the handwriting, but the results were inconclusive. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it could have been a prank. It could have been real. I don't know.
0: It doesn't seem real.
1: We'll never we'll never know. Mm. Um, but the thing is that no one, at least this is what I read, that no one else has ever claimed to be them. This is mm-hmm. the first time that something like that has happened so that's kind of interesting yeah. um but the fates of the three inmates from alcatraz still remains a mystery
0: a mystery yay yay <laughs> mystery <laughs> and that's what we're all about. oh
1: my god uh what a crazy i want to watch the movie though
0: <laughs> oh yeah What what were your sources
1: oh sources A lot of Wikipedia, Wikipedia Alcatraz penitentiary page, Wikipedia June 1962 Alcatraz prison escape page, Independent UK article by Adam Lusher, History.com article by Natasha Frost. And I got a lot from the official FBI government page on the Alcatraz escape. Mm -hmm. So they had a lot of good, like, investigation stuff on there. And Alan West... um, The guy who didn't make it was the one who was like, All right, I'll tell you everything. Here's Mm -hmm. what we did. Here's the plan. Yeah. So lots of patience. Six, seven months of planning, and they did it. Maybe. 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 We'll never know.
0: Could be. Uh, Good story. Yeah. So thanks for listening, you guys.
1: Thanks for listening. Uh, Sorry,
0: this one's like coming out later Wednesday. But it's um, Wednesday. But it is still Wednesday, you know, so technically I'm, we're I'm, gra- a long I'm
1: graduating time. in two weeks.
0: Right, <laughs> we got shit to do. We have a lot to do. <laughs> but yeah, check us out on our Instagram and my Instagram, Twitter. Instagram,
1: Twitter. Please follow us on Twitter. Mario
0: Text Thirty and Add Murdery Thingy. I believe is our handle. I never heard. Really I know, really. right? Um, You'll find it. You can visit our Patreon page, and uh, yeah, just all the stuff. So. Is it time? for weird shit oh, in the news? I thought I don't have any. I do. Oh, I thought you didn't have any either. Okay, you go. Well, I
1: found it last minute. <laughs>
0: oh, sorry, sorry. Weird shit in the news.
1: Weird shit in the news. So, this is from um uh jpost.com The Jerusalem Post, a uh an article by Zachary Kaiser quote, opium-addicted parrots terrorize Indian poppy farmers. Oh, yeah, you showed me this earlier. <laughs> Amazing. So this was in Madhya Pradesh region of India. Interesting, because well, I just it, talked about, just, the, about the scams Pradesh. over yeah. there. So this there really were um, uh, parrots terrorizing poppy farmers in recent months. So there's, it's this like serious problem. They've been experiencing monumental losses to their product um, so also isolated rainfall caused a damper on this year's product, but the parents the parents, the parrots are exponentially adding to the farmer's distress, ruining the farmers' products in the process. Um so apparently they like tried making loud sounds and even using firecrackers to scare them, but nothing helped. Um So one poppy flower produces 20 to 25 grams of opium each. However, the farmers are suffering from the parents, the parrots feeding on the plants up to 40 times a day, with some even flying away with the poppy pods. Wow. So they're getting high and coming back for more. Mm -hmm. And it's devastating. We quote, we have tried every trick possible to keep the birds at bay, but these addicts keep coming back even at the risk of their life, the farmer concluded. Uh, uh, I don't know. Birds could get high.
0: Yeah, no, I I think animals uh, of all stripes, you know, not only humans do uh, gain some some kind of, you know, altered uh, mental state, you know, I mean, we know like elephants do this with alcohol and and uh, like uh, naturally fermented, you know, berries and stuff. uh, So, yeah. Thanks for chiming in, Mozzie.
1: Thanks, Mozzie. <laughs> I don't know if
0: you guys can hear me. I that. don't know. <laughs> okay. He's pretty loud. Okay, are we is that are we done?
1: Are we done? I'm done. I think
0: so. Yeah, I don't have any weird shit, I'm sorry. That's okay. Okay. I think the opium
1: addicted parrots uh did it for us. Yeah, that's good. One.